Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. This episode contains reenactments of actual news broadcasts from the events spoken about in today's show. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. My first guest on Protect and Serve is a former FBI agent who started his career dealing with some of the most feared and notorious gangsters in America, all the way through to the biggest terrorist attack on US soil. Former FBI agent Wesley Wong has had an incredible career, and we are sure you will agree that he is the perfect guest to kickstart season one of Protect and Serve. Was law enforcement a career that you'd always desired to get involved in? Was it something that your family pushed you towards? Were they surprised when you made the decision? What, 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 how, what led you into becoming joining the FBI in the, in the first stages? Uh, I can tell you I had no interest in law enforcement growing up. There was never a day I thought I would be in law enforcement or uh, wow. being a police officer. I, I like to say it, I grew up in, uh, in the 50s. I'm, I'm showing my age now. And <laughs> I like to say that uh, if you were uh, Asian, if you were a Chinese kid growing up, during my uh, generation, you had two career choices. You could be a doctor or an engineer. I didn't like the sight of blood, so it was uh, preordained I was going to be an engineer. And that's when I went to college for, uh, to be an electrical engineer. So up until the FBI came knocking, uh, I had no interest in, in uh, law enforcement or the FBI. Looking back now, 
Um, I can say that, you know, for me, the FBI was the greatest career I could, could imagine. Um, mm. It turned out to be a, a, a wonderful experience, but to answer your question, no, I, I, I used to watch, you know, we used to have this show called the FBI with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. as the actor, the lead actor. And I used yeah. to watch that show as a kid growing up. And I, I liked the show, but I can't ever, re I can never remember thinking to myself, that's what I want to be when I, when I grow up. And so it was just fate. Um, I, I met an FBI agent in our restaurant. Um, I grew up in a, in a family run, run restaurant and an FBI agent from uh, our, the local office was a customer of ours. And uh, over time, he talked to me about joining the FBI. And that's how I got interested. And, and I uh, uh, became an FBI agent, strictly by, by, by chance. So, Wesley, uh, your career with the FBI began when you came out of Quantico and started working on investigations involving organized crime and Asian gangs. That really feels like you were thrown in the deep end. Was it, what was it like doing this in New York in the 1970s? It's interesting. When I came to uh, New York, I, I came to New York uh, in January of 1977. Mm -hmm. um, you start out your FBI career with a 16-week training at Quantico, Virginia. And so, uh, right, uh, you graduate on a Friday and you're expected to show up on a Monday uh, wherever you're assigned. And I was obviously assigned to the New York office. So on my first, first day in the office, I, I meet uh, the folks that kind of uh, get you settled, you know, give you a lay of the land. And I remember uh, one of the uh, agents who was part of the indoctrination said, uh, Wes, you'll be here two to four years, and then you know, you'll be rotated out uh, to another office. And, you know, I just kind of nodded and really didn't think about it. And um, 31, close to 31 years later, I was retiring out of the New York office. So, yeah, they lied to me on the very first day that, uh, <laughs> that I showed up uh, in the New York office. Um, you know, I do some public speaking, as you know, Ali, and, and one of the things I sometimes start out with, I know my first assignment was uh, Italian organized crime. And looking at me, you understand why I was a natural to work that, uh, that target. And uh, my, my squad worked the Bonanno uh, crime family. There's five major family, crime families in uh, New York, and the Bonanos are one of them. And so, um, came on to the Bonanno crime uh, squad. And uh, very shortly after uh, I came to New York, my supervisor called me into his office and he said, uh, Wes, do you have any casual clothes? And I, you know, I said, yes. And, um, you know, I'd come out of Quantico with all these new suits because that was the, what you were expected to wear was, uh, you know, uh, coat and tie suits every day. Yeah. And, um, he said, well, he says, I want to let, want you to let your hair grow a little long because we all had short hair back then. We couldn't, hmm. the dress standard was you couldn't have hair uh, over your ear or uh, touching the collar of your shirt. So yeah. all of us had pretty short hair. And uh, he said, um, I can't tell you what we have planned, but just let your hair grow a little bit and uh, make sure you have some casual clothes. And in February, and so I'm still on probation. 
So um, he calls me and he says, all right. He said, um, the Bananas have a social club. A social club uh, back in those days was where uh, the, the mob members hung out during the day. And they would talk business. They would play cards. They would uh, uh, drink and eat. And um, the Bananos Social Club was the Toyland Social Club. And it was right on the outskirts of Chinatown, New York. And so they thought, who better to go rent an apartment that could observe the movements of the Toyland than a Chinese agent? And wow. so in my second month of, of um, actually being an FBI agent, I uh, was... Uh, sent uh, into an undercover role to rent an apartment, set up a, a lookout where we could uh, video and photograph uh, movements outside of the club. And so um, that was my, my real introduction to uh, working organized crime. Uh, interesting, my, my very first arrest, um, we were going out to a, a another social club and I was helping another uh, agent with, uh, we had multiple arrests at this location. And so I spotted the, the subject that I was supposed to arrest. He was sitting in the back of the room playing cards and uh, went over to him. I said, sir, I said, you need to stand up, place your hands behind your uh, back, you know, I'm placing you under arrest. And he just sat there and he looked at me. He goes, uh, who are you with, the New York Times? <laughs> and I said, no, I said, I, I'm, I'm with the FBI. I said, you need to stand up, uh, you know. And uh, he goes, no, he says, he goes, New York Post? And I said, no, I'm not a reporter. I said, I am with the FBI. And he turned to our senior agent and he called, a, he called over to him and he said, Eddie. He says, is this guy really with you? And Eddie says, yeah, he's, he's one of us. And he said to Eddie, goes, this is not fair. We would never pick this guy out in, in Little Italy. And he says, we're looking for the white Irish 6'2 guy. And he goes, you're not playing fair with us, uh, uh, having this person. And um, I got him back to the office, and, and we were processing him. And uh, he gave me some advice that uh, I've never forgotten. Uh, I'm taking what we call his pedigrees, you know, all date of birth, all his background. Yeah. And he says to me, he says, uh, he says, you're new, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he goes, let me give you a little bit of advice. He goes, as long as you don't go after our families, you'll have no trouble with us. Wow. He goes, we understand this is a game. Our, game, our job is to commit crime and your job is to catch us. And he goes, there's no hard feelings. He says, we understand that, that that's your job. And he says, as long as you don't go after my wife and kids and make it personal, there'll, there'll be no issues. And uh, he said, my family will be taken care of. I'll get out in five or six years and life will resume. And I never forgot that lesson. Um, so it just reinforced what we learned in, at Quantico is you start out always treating everybody with respect. Hundred percent. Downhill from there, but uh, to this day, I'll, I've never forgotten that little conversation on my first arrest. Amazing! It's you know, shortly after you graduated, 
you moved on to the National Security Division of the FBI, specialising in counterintelligence. Is this an area that interested you or did your experience push you in that direction specifically? Um, it was a combination, a couple of things. Uh, at that time, there were two main uh, divisions. There was the criminal division and the mm -hmm. national security division. And I had worked uh, the criminal division for for a while and um, had some interest in the national security side, decided that, you know, wanted to, to, to experience that. And so um, it was a combination of interest, but also timing. It was just mm. a career, uh, it was time for a career change. You have been, I, I don't know whether it's, in, I don't know whether the word's incredibly fortunate, but certainly exposed to some of the major cases in US history, naming just a few, John Gotti, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the downing of TWA Flight 800, can you talk us through some of the challenges and, and any similarities that cut across these cases in particular for you? Let me just start out with uh, organized crime. When I came to New York, the common belief was you can't penetrate the mob. Um, it's such a closed society mm. that um, it would be an impossibility for, the, for law enforcement, the FBI, to, to penetrate and, and to get inside the organization. And uh, I think it was 1984, we had all five uh, heads of the, of the families in jail. Wow. And, and I'm not saying that was because of me. I'm just trying to give a time reference from when I arrived in 77 to early to mid 80s, we had basically devastated the mob. And I uh, had all, like I said, all uh, five of their leaders at one time in, um, in jail. U.S. District Court Judge Richard Owen ordered Bonanno to be incarcerated at the Metropolitan Correctional Facility in Tucson. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not a good one for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. A jury found him guilty of conspiring to get kickbacks on a $2.3 million loan for a union pension fund. According to FBI sources, the power play for control of New York's five families has just begun. The recent development that alleged boss of all bosses, Carmine Galenti, will be in jail for another five years. And what was the, what was the significant change to, that led to that? Was there something that was done slightly different than previous years to lead to that kind of significant development in arrests? It was some of our investigative techniques that yeah. we, we developed. Um, some of our uh, technical surveillance, which helped us. Um, mm -hmm. We developed informants um, that previously we hadn't been able to. So I think it was a combination of, of, of new techniques, new procedures, and um, some major uh, uh, recruitment of informants. And had you ever met face to face someone like John Gotti? Had you interviewed him, arrested him, or had anything any personal dealings with him in a law enforcement manner? Uh, I did not make the arrest, um, but I uh, uh, I was a uh, in charge of technical division at one time. What we call technically trained agents—they're the ones that will install the the microphones and the wiretaps and and wow. all the electronic surveillance. So it was my squad that actually put the device in that captured um, the audio up in the apartment 
uh, on the second floor that led to um, his, his downfall. What's the sort of pressure that comes from that, having to go into the space of an individual that you know is formidable and is quite frightening to a lot of people? And to carry out that role, what's I suppose that takes an awful lot of resilience and an awful lot of I don't know really. It's almost not you fearless in a little way. It's funny, you know. At the time, I, I think we. I'll speak for myself. Mm. Um, there's all you know. There's always a risk, as you know, Ali. In, in yeah. your past career, there's always a risk in in any kind of operation. Very but I so. think. I think we, you know, the procedures we had where we would do surveillance for for weeks and, and uh, try to minimize the, the risk as much as we could mm-hmm. um, through various uh, procedures. I, I don't think a lot of us worried that much about the danger because we felt before we made the entry, we had done everything we could to verify it was going to go smoothly. I, I will tell you one that did not go smoothly. We were going into uh, uh, an apartment uh, of a uh, of an organization that was involved in uh, um, drugs, mm-hmm. and so we had done everything we normally do. We had done the surveillances. We had verified that the the apartment was uh, clear. And so we were going to do an entry and put a, a listening device in. So the lock guy came, picked the lock. Um, I was <laughs> going to be the first one in. Uh, so I, I I have two tool bags, uh, a tool bag in either hand. So the wow. lock guy opens the lock and pushes the, the door open. I step into the threshold. And I see a fella laying on the couch, apparently asleep, with uh, with a uh, AK-47 laying on the floor next to him. My goodness! And, uh, so I immediately, obviously, stop, <laughs> and um, and I I say under my breath, "Gun, gun!" And the guys behind me think I'm being my typical self and fooling. And they start telling me, get in, get in, you know, stop fooling around. And I'm digging my my heels in so that they don't push me further in the room. And I keep saying under my breath, God, God. And so for a few seconds, you know, I can just see this guy waking up, picking up this weapon and opening up on us. And uh, and so they're pushing on me from behind. I'm pushing back with with my heels at point, you know, and uh, thankfully the guy didn't get up. We were able to close the door. We locked it, and obviously waited for another day. But that was the, probably the closest I came to real danger. But I I have to tell you, I puckered. I, I yeah, no, <laughs> I have no I have no uh, uh, problem admitting that. Uh, that uh, my heart was racing. 
Hi, and thanks for listening to Protect and Serve. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider giving us a rating and a review so other people can find our show. And don't forget to hit follow so you'll be notified as soon as the next episode is available. So that that was obviously probably the closest you came to being seen in your kind of covert role in that installation type of capacity. Yeah, we were... well, you know, we were very good at, I think, what we did, and mm. uh, and uh, that was the closest I came. Um, but it was it was not the closest that I ever got to actually being uh, hurt. Um, I remember one time we were looking for a fugitive. Uh, I had a partner, and we went over to the the fugitive's mother's apartment. Knocked on the door. We said, hey, we're looking for your son. Can we search your apartment? And she was very open, very, oh, yes, come on in. Yeah. And I think because of her demeanor was so open, I, I think I we probably let our guard down a little bit because I think both of us thought, he's not in here. If he was in here, mm. she would be. She'd be firing up. Right. But uh, she was very, you know, open, friendly. And so um, my partner and I, split up and I went into this one bedroom to 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 search and he went into another part of the apartment and it's funny I looked back that it was just like in the movies you know I I, I uh, laid down I looked under the bed you know looking didn't see him <laughs> there was a closet over in the corner and uh, as I reached for the door handle to open the closet to see if make sure that nobody was in there the door flew open no and the fugitive jumped out and he had a uh, pistol and he put a pistol to my head oh and uh the only thing i could think of like i didn't even think about hitting my weapon i just wanted to get the weapon off of me so that if it fired at least hopefully it wouldn't happen and i remember i grabbed the, the pistol and i just shoved it away from my from my head yelled for my partner and I was able to wrestle uh, this this fugitive down and and when my partner came in we were able to to, to cuff him and so we took him in and I, I was doing some paperwork and one of the evidence uh, technicians came by and he had the the weapon and the, and around in the glassine envelope and he goes Wes he goes you need to go buy a lottery ticket on the way home tonight and I go why and he goes look at the round and um he had pulled the trigger and it oh. had misfired oh. and you could see on the cartridge where the hammer the pin had hit the cartridge but for some reason it misfired and because it was a semi-automatic uh, weapon he couldn't get another round off and uh so that's the closest I've, I've, I think I ever came to. And I, you know, I, I would imagine that after being involved in something and 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 your colleague sharing that with you, that there must be a moment of reflection and a moment of kind of comprehension of how lucky you were in that scenario. But obviously putting all that one aside, you have the ability then just to keep on going. It's not something that's stuck in the back of your mind. It seems like you're quite, you, you had a great skill of being able to, 
to put these experiences behind you, not to interfere with future taskings. You're able to continue on, you know, in, in a really good capacity. I think so. And, and, and one of the things I decided early on, um, I realized that if I carried, you know, I'll use some of our terms, maybe you and I would understand. If you carried the job home yeah, and you carried it out of the office, it was probably going to be detrimental mm. to whatever relationship, you know, whether it was with your family, whether it was a wife or a girlfriend or your kids. Yeah. And so I worked very hard to, once I left the office and I was home, mm -hmm. to separate the two because... Um, it's an incredible I just, skill. I just saw so many of our, uh, of my colleagues, you know, that... Um, led to problems at home because they couldn't mm. um it's it, uh, an interesting little side bit to this story so my son is um he's in a an army officer and when he graduated from his officer training i was still in the fbi normally they have a general uh, as the graduation speaker but um they asked me if I would be the graduation speaker. And I, I was honored and I did it. So um, after I gave my little speech, my son came up to give me the, the class graduation uh, gift. Hmm. And as he was standing there, he goes, Dad, he goes, I learned more about your career in the few minutes that you just said than in all the years you were home because he goes, you would never talk about your job to, to, to us. I have a daughter, Jennifer, and, and he'll tell people to this day that my dad just never really talked about what he did um, when he was home. So I, I think that helped me to get through some of these things. Yeah. There are, you know, there's, there's plenty of examples, I think in time where, there have been certain individuals, and I don't know if the name Joe Pistoni is, is familiar with you in terms of the pressure that undercover work brings individuals, sometimes causes them to go off the rails. And, you know, what's your experience? Any of your colleagues really, you know, get so involved in the undercover world that it causes them to almost get too embedded in those, in those roles? It's funny you mentioned Joe. Joe and I are friends. And... Um, if you read any of his books and you saw some pictures, there's pictures of him at the Toyland Social Club. Yeah. And uh, I took those pictures. And so oh. I, always, I still tease Joe. I go, Joe, I still want the royalties. from the <laughs> And he goes, the check's in the mail. So Joe and I uh, uh, are still friends. Um, interesting story. I used to see him at the Toyland Social Club. And I didn't know he was one of us. And so, wow. as you know, Ollie, and anybody in, in law enforcement that's listening to this, you, if you're doing a, a photo surveillance, you do a log. And so I would try to identify if I saw somebody coming or going and I took a photo, I would say it was so-and-so, you know, at this time. And, uh, but I didn't recognize him. And so what we would, I, the Shorthand was Fanu Lanu, first name unknown, last name unknown. So I would put yeah. Fanu Lanu <laughs> in the time. And so I, one day I, I was going to see my handler and I said, hey, I said, there's a new guy at the Toyland Social Club. I said, can you tell me 
who it is so I can put it in my log. And the, the agent looked at it and goes, oh, Wes, you don't need to know who this is. So I assumed, well, listen, I'm a new agent. I'm still on probation. Mm. It's probably another agent's informant. And I don't need to know this. I don't need to ask any more questions. And uh, so, and, and, and let me just say this. I was not anywhere near as deep cover as Joe. Joe was, was without a doubt the number one undercover FBI agent in, in, in the mob. Hey, Donnie, Donnie, come off your fucking high horses. Let me tell you something. I had a four and a half hour meeting about you again, again today. For what? Hey, Donnie, don't say for what. Well, what? you know, you, you say don't say for what. How do I we know? I don't even know what you're talking about. I went out the fucking captains. I'm in trouble today. Now we're going right to the top. And, um, I'm, I was much, much lower than him. So, but I, I got to meet Joe. We both came out. So I introduced myself to Joe. And I said, Joe, I said, you did a wonderful job. I said, I never picked you <laughs> as one of us. And he said, uh, you know, I, I would, uh, he says, yeah, he says, I, you know, I would go by there. He said, I would see you. And he went back that it was, you know, we used the term Oriental. He, and he said to his hand, he goes, there's this Oriental guy that sometimes I see hanging around. <laughs> and he goes, my, my hand was said, Joe, you don't need to know who that is. So <laughs> we were both like looking at each other. We, we, I still tease Joe once in a while we get together for lunch or something. And I, and I go, Joe, don't sit too close. That contract is still out on you. <laughs> and and, and the, the, whoever they hire might be a bad shot. So just, you know, you, you sit on one side of the table wow. and I sit on the other, but he's a, he, he went through some tough times. Yeah, know? I'm sure he, he did. And I, I'm just so glad that he's, you know, he and his wife got through it. Um, great. To, you know, they managed to, to get through, but I know he, he had a difficult time. An undercover FBI agent who joined the underworld spent his second day in the witness chair. Milton Lewis reports the lawman was working his way up the crime ladder. For him to come through the other side and to be moving on in some level of normality is a, a blessing, really, I suppose. We um, absolutely we, we had a fellow in New York who went down to uh, to the Atlanta office and went undercover. And he, 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 he went to the dark side. And we had to arrest him. And mm. when I heard the news, he would have been the last guy you think would have gone, you know, gone south. Mm. He's a mm. former Marine, wonderful uh, uh, agent, wonderful family man. I mean, just every, just, I was stunned when I heard that he had uh, joined the other side and uh, had been arrested you know, by us. So it does happen. Um, and you're, you're right. Ali. And again, I, I, I don't want to, you know, say, you know, how much I personally have sacrificed, but uh, one of the things that um, I was lucky. So when my son was born, I was undercover and I just happened to be in town the moment he was born. So I got to see my son born. I I got to hold him for a little bit. 
I had to leave that shortly after he was born. And I did not see him and my wife for another two weeks. Wow. And so, so it just so happened that I happened to be at the right place at the right time. Um, got to witness the, the birth and then had to say, mm. got to go. Um, so I, in looking back, you know, we do make sacrifices. And uh, do you know what? I think the important point there is also the sacrifices that our families make for the roles that we take on and the support we get given by loved ones, wives, children, parents. You know, it's um, they're often the unsung heroes that uh, are often forgotten about because they allow you to work in the environment you do without having to worry about them because they're able to kind of maintain the ship. It's um, obviously something that you reflect on, I, I assume. It, it's, it's interesting you say that because my son said something to me a while back that I just never realized. He said to me, he said, you know, my daughter's name is Jennifer. He said, Jen and I, he goes, we knew when you were kind of doing something out of the ordinary, he says, you know, usually you would have a, a suit and you'd go in in the morning and all, but he goes, there were days when, you know, you would be going out in the evening and you would be dressed casual. Mm. And, you go, and he said, we would sit up in our room and go, do you think dad's coming home tonight? Oh, wow. And um, it, it really, it touched me because I, I said to him, I said, Chris, I said, do you guys actually worried about me? He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, we would sit up there sometimes and 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 wonder if um, you were going to come home, um, you know, afterwards. And I, I just never realized that they that I put them through that. So, so with that in mind, do you think that J. Edgar Hoover was right in the, the view that such deep undercover work is too dangerous sometimes? That's a good question. I, I think I, I think so much depends on the individual. Yeah. When I came into the Bureau, we didn't do a lot of background. Um, well, I don't want to say background. We didn't do a lot of preparation for mm-hmm. going undercover. Um, you know, we didn't do any psychological uh, screening. We, we didn't really prepare, I think, uh, agents. We just sort of threw them into the deep end, so to speak. And I know that um, we, we we paid a price for that. Yeah. And and so I think we do a lot better job now of trying to screen the right person for mm-hmm. that, that role. Um, I, I think I, I think we probably not probably we didn't do a good job of preparing our agents for those roles, you know, mm. back, back then. Understood. Uh, and, and you know, so much depends on the psychological makeup of the individual, right? I mean, who knows how anyone's going to react, you know, to what they might encounter um, in an undercover role. And, and what's, what's I think is so difficult is again for for any of us in, in the law enforcement community what, what's what's the bond the bond is your your fellow officers your fellow squad mates yeah you have this you probably spend more time with them than 
your 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 better half. Hundred percent, hundred percent right. And now all of a sudden you don't have that. You're mm. out on your own. You're not allowed to come into the office. You're not hearing about hey, you know, Ollie got promoted or Ollie, you know, uh, they just had a new son, right? You're cut off from all of of that that you, that keeps you going. And so I think that's the tough part for for a, a lot of undercover is you're now separated from that world that that, that keeps you grounded. And mm. so the only one you're seeing from the office is your handler. You're not going to the office parties, you're not going to the birthday parties, you know, and uh you're not finding out what's going on with your fellow agents. And so, um, and then witnessing some of the things that you witness, there's no support mechanism because you're out there on your own, so to speak. So I, I think that's a good point you have. And I, th- I think when you look to today's standards, you know, when you look at some of the officers and investigators globally that take on some of the more, what I would describe as more confronting investigational work, whether it be, in child exploitation, whether it be in counterterrorism, whether it be in homicide, you know, there are a number of steps to go through before you can reach those departments and a lot of psychometric testing to make sure that you have the mental capacity and, you know, this, you know, the psychological framework that's needed to probably deal with such confronting images day in, day out, very challenging crime scenes. Those are the difficult things. And I, I you know, and even more that you know, the screening for that is quite complex. And I assume that, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that screening probably wasn't there in the first part. It was just who would fit into a scenario that they wanted to obviously try and establish a presence in. Right. I agree. I know um, I never worked uh, any of the sex uh, exploitation, but I know I've known agents, and that takes a huge toll, mm. huge toll on them. Um, mm. I know several that have worked that uh, that uh, violation and uh, that's a tough one. You're listening to part one of my chat with retired special agent Wesley Wong of the FBI. Coming up in part two, Wes talks us through the harrowing events of 9-11 and the terrifying moment he thought he may never see his family again. And he said something I didn't want to hear. In a typical rough New York accent, it don't look good. And I'll be honest, and I have, again, no, no problem admitting this, I started to, to, to lose it. I was starting to believe that um, we were not going to survive um, that morning. Next time on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.